and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, we've both been covering financial markets and the economy for, I think, roughly the same amount of time, right? Uh, you are four years older than me. I know you forget oh, this shoot. from time to time, but yeah. <laughs> We're I... not... Wait, are you a millennial? <laughs> I'm on the cusp of a millennial. I'm what they call an elder millennial, Joe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but roughly the same, sure. So one of the things that I think has been a persistent theme for as long as I've been following this stuff is people predicting the inevitable demise of the U.S. dollar as the global dominant safe asset. Wouldn't mm. you, you, would you feel the same way? Oh, for sure. And there are certain, um, let's say, conspiratorial-leaning websites and commentators who love to take up this yes. topic. In fact, I still remember my dad emailing me about how the Iraq war was caused by Iraq demanding or, or starting to offer crude oil in euros as opposed to the U.S. dollar. So this is something that comes up all Wait. the time that there's going to be. Seriously, I just had a really yeah. good idea. Okay. Can we have your dad as a guest on the show sometime? Oh, my God. No, I'm um, serious, because number <laughs> a number of times now your dad has come up in a character, as a character in your thinking, whether it's like we're talking about precious metals or some other conspiracy or something political. And it's like, why do we keep talking about him? Why don't we have him as a guest sometime? I will ask him. You yes. can definitely ask him about silver if he comes on. <laughs> okay, good. Don't tell him, don't show him any of my writings <laughs> where I talk about how crazy okay. silver people are, though. Okay, I don't want him to dislike me. All right. But anyway, you're right. So a lot of like fringe, gold bug, zero hedge, silver bug, all that kind of stuff. They've been talking about the uh, inevitable demise of the U.S. dollar for as long as I think both of us can remember. But what's interesting is that rather than the dollar having collapsed, as many people would have predicted, maybe after the financial crisis or beforehand due to various reasons, it's actually gotten stronger and it's uh, it's going nowhere. It's still here, just as strong as ever. And arguably, it's becoming even more dominant on the global stage over the last decade or so. Yeah. And in addition to that, you now have quite a bit of academic research that's actually pointing out just how dominant the dollar is in the financial system and starting to write about how this is a problem. So Hyung Sun Shin from the Bank for International Settlements, who was on Odd Lots, is a really good example of this. But probably the most recent one was Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, who gave that speech at Jackson Hole. We right. mentioned it on last week's episode of the podcast, and you actually weren't there, but he proposed potentially replacing the dollar in the financial system with a sort of multipolar digital currency. I think he called it a synthetic hegemonic currency. I know. I love that expression. It's so sci-fi. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what's interesting is like the conversation about the dollar, it's not that the dollar's got collapsed as everyone predicted or as a lot of people thought was inevitable. It's actually gotten stronger. And now the conversation is, oh, my God, it's becoming too dominant. And so we do have all these sort of elite circles, whether it's Mark Carney or the BIS. And they're also talking about the uh, post-dollar world, but from kind of the opposite perspective that we would like to see it recede. And it's uh, stubbornly refusing to, much to the chagrin of uh, maybe your dad and other conspiracy theorists. <laughs> right. So we're going to be talking about uh, the dollar's not-so-inevitable yeah. demise on this episode. Exactly. The dollar's refusal 
to weaken just how everyone thinks it should. So uh, previous Odd Lots guest from way back in the day, I think we talked to him right in the wake of the uh, Trump election about various topics. He's an economist. He's been talking and writing about the dollar a lot lately and sort of uh, thinking about these issues kind of on a similar trajectory as uh, Mark Carney. I want to bring in this week's guest, uh, David Beckworth. He's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, longtime economics researcher and commenter, uh, public voice on these issues. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me back on the show. Thanks for being back. So, you know, how surprised are you? Let's start by this about how prominent the voices are these days. Tracy and I were just talking about who are really calling out the sort of urgent need or at least semi-urgent need to get away from the global dollar dominance. It is surprising that we are having this conversation in this time in history. You're right. You would think by this point the dollar would be less consequential but the rest of the world continues to feel its brunt, as you mentioned. So it's, it's not surprising that the rest of the world is talking about it. It's just surprising that we're still talking at this point in time. Hmm. John Connolly, Richard Nixon's secretary of Treasury, said the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. I think the difference today would be it's, it's our currency and it's our problem collectively as a world. Because I think the big difference between now and then is it's gotten so far reaching that when it does create problems. It affects the world, but it also comes back to affect the U.S. economy. So talk to us exactly why a strong dollar is a problem for the U.S. economy. And could you maybe sort of put it through the lens of Donald Trump? And the reason I ask that is because there used to be some confusion or it seemed like there was confusion about whether Trump wanted a stronger or a weaker dollar. Um, you know, a strong dollar intuitively sounds good for someone who likes to make things great again, but a weak dollar would be good for U.S. exports and the manufacturing sector. And now it seems like Trump has definitively settled on what he wants. He wants a weaker dollar. So why is that and why is a strong dollar painful for America? Yeah, I think there's there's two reasons or two ways that it affects the U.S. And, and the first one is when you're talking about the Trump's really worried about, even if he hasn't correctly figured it out entirely, and that's the domestic effects. So the world demands dollars to buy our safe assets. We're like the biggest producer of safe assets, treasuries, but also some other assets, GSCs, even some privately produced safe assets. But as a consequence, the dollar tends to be overvalued more often than not which in turn means we're going to run more trade deficits. We're also going to tend to run more budget deficits. And, and all this has distributional consequences. It, it, turns, it tends to you know, support the finance industry. We are great at exporting debt and financial securities to the rest of the world. It's one of our comparative advantages. But you know, Trump sees the flip side of that. He sees the, the cost and that certain other industries like manufacturing do get uh, harmed. And so there's, there's this distributional question, and it, it does have a, a bearing domestically. Also, in, a, in addition, you know, because the world wants our assets so badly, in general, financing costs are lower in the U.S., which means the U.S. tends to be more leveraged than it would otherwise be the case. So between kind of distributional questions, more over leverage, there is this domestic angle and I think that's what Trump really is trying to figure out. He blames China. He blames others. But it's really the strong dollar that arises from this demand for our assets. But the second thing that I think Carney's getting at as well is there is this global financial cycle 
you see the Fed being more cognizant of it. Now, Jay Powell can't come out and say, hey, we have an international mandate now, but he is more mindful of the reverberations that you know their policies can have to go through the global economy, come back to the U.S. But in short, there's this domestic concern and then there's an international concern. So there is a lot to unpack here. Let's start with, you talked about the insatiable demand or the very high demand at a minimum for U.S. produced financial assets. And treasuries are one of them, but uh, GSE debt is another. Maybe uh, certain parts of U.S. real estate are considered safe dollar denominated assets by the rest of the world. Explain this phenomenon. What is it about U.S. dollar denominated assets that people crave all around the world and why can't they find the equivalent elsewhere, whether it's in Japan or Germany or UK or some other country like that? Well, it's a path dependency story. I think you can tell. I mean, it starts off with the U.S. being the biggest economy in the world. Now, we're not so much. We're, you know, we're running neck and neck with China. But that's the original story here is the U.S. starts out big. Um, it's, it's got a huge tax base, lots of resources to back it up. But over time, what happens is the dollar spreads throughout the world. And so there's these huge network effects. Like, and its path dependency story is the more widely used this, this currency is, the more valuable it is. And it's, got, it's gotten to such an extent, there's an incentive to look to any kind of dollar-denominated asset as the safest asset of the world. So even as the U.S. size, it, the U.S. economy as a percent of world GDP shrinks, the reach of the dollar continues to grow. And that's one of the um, discussions that was had at this Jackson Hole conference is that it's, it's ironic that the dollar's reach is actually growing when the U.S. economy is shrinking. And again, the reason is it's just it's more convenient. There's a convenience yield to, to price things in dollars. Now, it's, it's better to get them from the U.S., but foreigners are also producing these dollar-denominated assets. So the BIS keeps track of this, and they report just over $11 trillion in dollar-denominated securities have been issued outside the United States. So there's an incentive for them to issue it as well just because of the convenience yield. So just to press on this point, you're saying that everyone wants dollar-denominated assets, but because the rest of the world economy is growing while the U.S. is sort of sluggish or not growing as fast, that at some point, maybe now, the U.S. becomes unable to basically absorb all that demand for dollar-denominated assets. Yeah, Is that it? It was all, it's been coined the Triffin Dilemma. The world wants the reserve currency's assets more than the country that produces is willing to either make it or can make it. So, yeah, the world wants us to produce more treasuries, more GSCs, more financial assets, but that in turn would make us the, an incredibly over-leveraged economy. And so somewhere else in the world, they're trying to meet that demand. I mean, we, we saw this during you know the early to mid-2000s there weren't enough treasuries to go around, so we turned to Wall Street to create synthetic safe assets that weren't so safe once you know everything came clear. And I think we're seeing that again in the rest of the world. The world's producing some of this. Wall Street's still producing it. There, is, there are privately labeled assets still going out there. But for us to truly meet the world's demand, for, in other words, for us to get those interest rates around the world back up to what would be more normal historical levels would require a lot more debt creation, and I think you know, we're uncomfortable doing that at some level.
I want to get to the other side of the equation about the downsides of the global dollar, but just to walk us there. So we have all this demand for dollar-denominated assets because of these network effects that you describe. That has distributional consequences for the U.S. because it perpetually uh, maybe strengthens the dollar too much, hurting domestic uh, manufacturers while benefiting the financial industry, which essentially is the manufacturer of dollar-denominated assets. So helping finance uh, hurting workers. You can see why uh, Trump is not crazy about that situation. Let's talk about the global picture. So something that obviously Mark Carney talked about at Jackson Hole was it's not just that it hurts uh, U.S. workers, the strong dollar. There are consequences for the entire world of everyone essentially being on the dollar cycle. And I think we saw that in 2018 a bit when the Federal Reserve hiked rates multiple times. Perhaps that was appropriate given the growth of the U.S. economy that year, but it hurt other parts of the world that maybe didn't want to see uh, rate hikes. Talk to us about the effect that dollar uh, dominance has on uh, other countries. Yeah, because of all the dollar-denominated assets held abroad, as well as the number of countries that either implicitly or explicitly link to the dollar. And, and there's this number I throw, and it, it seems almost too high, but 70% of the world economy has their currency linked in some form to the dollar. And this comes from a Rockoff, Reinhardt, and his Elzeski paper. But because of that, 70% of the world economy is linked in some form to the dollar. That means when the Fed sets monetary policy or when it causes the dollar to change in value, it's really setting monetary policy to some extent for the rest of the world. And that's just, you know, a bad idea. We're not all the same economy. Just like the Eurozone has learned one size does not fit all for the ECB, it doesn't make sense for the Fed to be setting monetary policy for the world effectively. You know, it, it goes through this, the linkage of currencies that link to the dollar, but also all this dollar-denominated debt, the $11 trillion. Those are liabilities that foreigners own, and yet their revenues are earned in their domestic currency. So you have currency mismatch on balance sheets. You've you got the wrong monetary policy coming in. So it does, it creates this kind of global financial cycle, and it's really a global dollar cycle. I think central bankers, policymakers around the world are acutely aware of it, more so probably than U.S. policymakers. I, you mentioned 2018, Joe. I remember you know, 2015, something similar happening. When the Fed started talking up rate hikes, the dollar began to go up while the other central banks were easing, and that also created some, some you know, pressures, kind of a mini-recession in the U.S. during that time. And that, that was a global story. Oil, oil prices collapsed. The emerging markets slowed down. There was some panic in China. Yeah, when the U.S. sneezes, you know, the rest of the world gets a cold. It's the saying, and it's even more true with the reach of the dollar today. So how does the international aspect of all of this actually impact the dollar? Because you sort of alluded to this already, but after 2008, um, we had this shortage of safe assets, right? So I, I'm just curious if dollar dominance grows with each financial crisis or with, even with each bout of risk off in the market, and that would mean dollar financing costs also decline, which would incentivize people to use more dollars, I guess. Um, how do you break that feedback loop? Because it, it feels like we're in this sort of endless cycle of ever increasing dollar reliance. To be honest, I don't know that we can or that it's possible anytime soon. That was the heart of Mark Carney's proposal, right? Is he wants to find a rival or a substitute to the dollar? And, and just to put things in perspective, I, you know, I threw some numbers together in some of my research looking at this, but there's about $28 trillion 
of, of assets out, that, that foreigners hold, $28 trillion in dollar denominated assets that either they've issued, that $11 trillion they've issued, and some that they've gotten from us. And in order to compete with the dollar, you'd have to have some other you know, rival that can, can offer assets on that level. And you, I just can't imagine this SHC, this wonderfully termed synthetic hegemonic currency, suddenly issuing that much or close to that much in terms of assets. So I, I don't see an easy way to break that. I mean, it, it, last time this happened was when we went from the pound to the dollar, and that required a world war, a major shift. I mean, it also required the U.S. becoming a leading industrial power, surpassing the, the U.K. So network effects are strong. So Tracy, I don't have a very optimistic uh, <laughs> prognosis on that front. It's one thing in theory to have a dollar substitute. So let's say the IMF or some global entity had some sort of synthetic basket, maybe it's digital, that represented some nice GDP-weighted um, you know, share of different currencies, some sort of basket. But as you say, the path dependency as such, even if it were to be a nice dollar substitute from a sort of pure economic point of view, the path dependency is such as you would still need people to switch over to it. You would still need to have people get comfortable issuing bills uh, denominated in this unit. You would still have to have get people comfortable issuing debt. I mean, we see how hard it is just to move off of, say, uh, LIBOR to some new debt standard. It's really hard to move uh, standards, uh, let alone a whole currency. Yeah, that's a great analogy. It is very hard when something is widely used. It's convenient. Why do I want to go to the trouble? You know, exchange, the international currency, it, it, contracts are priced in dollars. You know, depending on how you measure, 50 to 80% of international trade is, is invoiced in dollars. Why would I want to inconvenience myself by using some other currency? There has to be some kind of external push, a shock, something that really, really makes it worth my while, a war, you know, something serious happening in the United States. One scenario would be eventually China emerges as a country with great institutions, with great safe stores of values, but that's a long, long ways off. Maybe the Eurozone comes up with their own safe assets. That seems to be a ways off as well. And so it, best case scenario would be a gradual, in the absence of some kind of major shock, some kind of gradual adjustment that will take many years to go through. So let me ask the obvious question, which would be, why doesn't the U.S. just issue more debt to satisfy all this extra demand? So you alluded to the fact that in many respects, the U.S. economy is quite overlevered and we feel uncomfortable doing it in many ways. But as we talk more and more about the potential for fiscal stimulus to lift growth, why don't we see the U.S. just take advantage of really low interest rates, lots of appetite for dollar-denominated debt, and just issue a bunch of bonds? That's a great question. I would say to some degree we already do that. Not enough, but think of like President Trump's budget deficits. The only way he got away with that is because there's such a strong appetite for our securities. I mean, it, you know, this, this appetite lowers the financing costs, makes it easier for us to run budget deficits so Trump can run a huge peacetime budget deficit. But I just think in general, there's a lack of understanding maybe about this issue that the role, important role we do play, it would take a huge, I don't know, public education campaign to say, look, the world needs our securities, we've got to issue more of them. Maybe if it was done in a thoughtful way as well. It's, it's one thing to you know, issue a lot more treasuries to fund maybe infrastructure, something with a good high return in the U.S. economy, as opposed to 
funding, you know, tax cuts or wasteful spending. Right. So it, it'd be a complicated thing to do. But that's why people have talked about sovereign wealth funds, you know, where you'd issue treasuries or some kind of mechanism or facility where you would do something like that. But that's a long conversation in itself with the public and with Congress. Well, what about the exact opposite proposal? And I think you're not a fan of this idea uh, based on your writing, uh, but we have seen a couple senators in the U.S. say, rather than issuing extraordinary amounts of debt to satisfy the world's desire to hold safe assets, why don't we just do a clean break and force the world to essentially go elsewhere to look for their safe assets? Or And by that, the plan is tax foreign investments. And so you, uh, a couple of U.S. senators, Josh Hawley from Missouri is one of them. They're just like, you know what? The strong dollar, A, it's hurting the world. It's hurting U.S. workers. Let's tax foreign uh, purchases of dollar assets. That should weaken the U.S. dollar, help workers, and maybe it would be an accelerant for uh, the creation of a new safe ha- asset around the world. What about that plan? Just uh, tax uh, foreign buyers. It is well-intentioned, and it, it's it's thinking creatively, and it's going in the right direction in terms of you know what we want to do, but I just don't think it will work. So intentions aside... What it effectively does is it reduces the supply of safe assets, at least future safe assets. It's you know you, you tax something, you're effectively putting gears in the sand, you're, you're making it harder to produce, right. and so we're not going to be changing, we're not going to be fixing the demand side of that equation. All we would be doing is is squeezing the supply side, and so you would even make the problem more pronounced. And and the analogy or the comparison I like to draw of what I think it would look like would be 2008 because. 2008, as I mentioned earlier, we had all these, we thought what we thought were safe assets that suddenly disappeared. So that there's a case where, think of the supply of safe assets suddenly shrinking. And what happened? The dollar actually got stronger. Yields actually fell farther down. And I think we would see the same thing. If, if we thought this bill would see the light of day, I think you would see the markets begin to realize, oh my goodness, the supply of safe assets is going to be less. Let's race to the existing ones. And we, you would see the dollar get stronger and yields go down. You know, we see negative rates around the world. I jokingly call this bill the the bill to give negative yield curves to everyone who has safe assets. Um, I think it would make the problem worse in short. This might be an odd question, but um, to what extent is Trump's trade war with China an attempt to solve this monetary problem? So. If the U.S. can't target foreign capital surpluses directly and stop the flood of money coming into its market, then I guess maybe you can sort of target the current account and try to shrink the trade deficit so that there's less money to then flood into the U.S. system. Do you think the trade war is sort of an unconscious or or conscious attempt to rectify this problem? Absolutely. That's a great question. I I do think, I think Trump and I think populism in general across the globe is a response to this imbalance. This is part of the problem with international monetary system. And and we see the distortions created by it. And so, yeah, I do think President Trump, he he knows something's wrong. Maybe he doesn't have it quite 100% figured out correctly, but he's pushing in the right direction. He senses something's up and he's pushing back. Is it going to work? I don't think his approach is going to work. I mean, my suggestion maybe partial fixes would be one for the Federal Reserve to do level targeting of some kind. Now, now, you guys know I'm a big fan of nominal GDP level targeting, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be price level targeting. But anything that would make up for past misses, so we know the Fed's undershot for the past decade. Imagine if it hadn't. 
that probably would imply a weaker dollar. Um, also, there's been proposals by some for the Fed to extend currency swap lines throughout the world to other major trading partners. And that what might you know reassure some of those countries and may not need to hold on to dollar assets as much, reduce the precautionary demand for dollar assets. Both of those moves, of course, would not be easy either. They both have costs. Um, but they, they are things I think the Fed could do, and I think it, they're, they're decisions that Trump could endorse as well. But back to your original question, yeah, I do think Trump, he senses something's wrong, and this is probably at the core of it. I think that's interesting, this idea of the Fed uh, setting up swap lines with central banks around the world. Of course, the book Crashed by Adam Tooze, which is a big history of the Eurozone crisis, it really spotlighted the role of those swap lines in easing the stress, allowing the uh, European banks to have access to dollar liquidity. And then thinking back to what you said at the beginning of our discussion here, that that essentially with 70% of the global economy, either under the dollar or some peg or a soft peg to the US dollar, that the world is kind of like one big eurozone. And we see the problem with that in the euro area where you have a, a singular monetary policy that doesn't work for all its members. And I so it's like we keep coming back to this situation in which the world is a single de facto uh, currency union without the currency flexibility enjoyed by most of the countries. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's it's the irony, right? We went off the Bretton Woods system where it was this global fixed exchange rate regime linked to the dollar. We went off of it and, and, and textbooks say when you go to a world of floated exchange rates, exchange rates should adjust. But what we see in practice is something much more rigid, something much more akin to a Bretton Woods two. And the dollar is again at the core of that. It's it's the main currency. And, you know, to kind of flesh that analogy out like you're suggesting, it, it would make sense then to have currency swap lines in all the major trading partners. One reason this would be a hard sell is because it would implicitly expand the Fed's balance sheet, all the kind of the unspoken liabilities this would imply. Now, on paper, it wouldn't necessarily mean that. It would just mean a commitment. So that would, you know, I imagine be pretty controversial right. before Congress. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if there had been more awareness of the uh, f the swap lines that were put in place around the euro crisis. I mean, we were pay paying attention to a bunch of other stuff, but it feels like the potential for very intense political scrutiny about the Fed doing deals with foreign central banks uh, could theoretically be uh, problematic if the wrong people or the right people start paying attention to that. Yeah, I would love to see this next presidential campaign, I, which I'm not holding my breath, to have them talk about these issues. It'd be great if someone got up and said, hey, we are the main safe asset supplier to the world. These are the implications. There's this Triffin dilemma. Hey, maybe we should have currency swap lines. We have a role to play globally. And we, we want to balance that against our domestic concerns. Let's think through the policy options. So we've been talking a lot about the downsides of a strong dollar and really the downsides of having the dollar as a sort of central figure in the entire global financial system. So maybe to finish it off, talk to us about why having a strong dollar, having the dollar as the world's reserve currency is actually a good thing for America. Yeah, I'm glad you'd said that because I want to end on a positive note as well. The dollar is a global medium of exchange. And you know, one could argue in its absence or in the absence of a global medium of exchange, globalization itself could not have taken off as it has over the past few decades. And we know globalization 
has brought with it the freeing of many people stuck in poverty. So the you know the billion or so people who were in poverty who are now not in poverty because of international trade, because of globalization, you could make the argument that they're there because there was the dollar. So I think one can make a reasonable case that while there are all these costs to the dollar, the net benefit to the world has been positive in terms of liberating the poor from the shackles of, of a closed system. Uh, this is an absolutely fascinating topic, and you provided a really sort of clear explanation of this phenomenon and why people are uh, talking so much about the problems of the uh, persistently strong dollar. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks so much, David. That was great. Tracy, I loved that conversation. I think this is just such a rich load to mine, such a fascinating topic, because the problem is fairly clear, I think, and yet the solution seems almost intractable. It's almost impossible to imagine what is anywhere close to being in position to take the dollar's place on the world stage. Yeah, you can't fight those network effects, I guess. Uh, I find it really interesting as well because it touches on a, a number of topics that we've talked about at one point or another on the show, things like safe assets, things like the trade war, like big capital surpluses in other parts of the world that then kind of move into the U.S. market and end up impacting it. But it does seem to be an intractable problem and you kind of wonder, you know, David touched on this towards the end where he was talking about how the dollar as reserve currency has basically enabled and also grown in tandem with globalization. And you do wonder if you're going to get a solution that basically looks like deglobalization, right? You could basically get ring-fenced financial systems where China relies on the UN for all its currency dealings and the US relies on the dollar and the euro relies on the euro and that whole sort of network of financial interdependence starts to get unpicked. You know what's really interesting is um, David's term and Mark Carney used it to, and you just mentioned it, network effects and the network mm. effects of the dollar being so strong. And it's funny that Facebook is launching its own or you know its own currency libra because there are probably a lot of uh, analogies between the dollar and facebook itself namely that everyone seems to hate facebook and complains about it all the time and thinks there's all kinds of issues with it and it drives people crazy and yet the prospect of actually leaving facebook is really difficult and so even if you hate facebook and you don't like their uh surveillance practices and you don't like uh, all kinds of manipulations that they do, it's pretty difficult to leave, just like the dollar. You can identify problems with being in the dollar social trading network, but where else are you going to go? It's a really difficult problem. So kind of the way, uh, there more than Libra itself, there are already a lot of analogies between uh, Facebook and the dollar. Right, not to mention uh, slightly monopolistic tendencies, yeah. uh, as some commentators say. Yeah, I like that analogy. Uh, in any case, it'll be really interesting to see how this debate evolves in the future. Like you said at the beginning of the discussion, we've already come a long way from pre-2008. You know, the dollar is going to be replaced by the euro or the renminbi or something like that. 
It's going to be really interesting to see how it changes in the next few years, whether we do get that synthetic hegemonic currency. You know who might actually have some good ideas for what could replace the dollar? Go on. Your dad. So oh we got to get him on. No, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to that episode now. All right. I'll try to make it happen. Okay, good. Okay, this has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow David on Twitter. He's great. He's at David Beckworth. And be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And check out the new home of Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.